every few decades, an event comes along of biblical proportions. What do you mean, biblical? Real wrath of God type stuff. Fire and brimstone, 40 years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. So begins one of the trailers for the 1984 film, Ghostbusters. Starring Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and, of course, Sigourney Weaver. I loved the Ghostbusters. I mean, as a kid, they even had a toy line, and so I had a proton pack and one of those ghost traps that you could slide into a room and pretend there's somebody in there, you know, before you go in, catch the ghost. It was great. I mean, strokes of brilliance all over the film. You had the stay-puffed marshmallow man blowing up to the size of Lower Manhattan. Although there was, was it the second one or the first one? I don't remember. There was like a baby that was lost in this creepy picture. That actually kind of freaked me out a little bit as a kid. Um, But anyhow, I mean, who didn't love Ghostbusters? I mean, everybody knows the song. You can still get you, who are you going to call, right? They're the Ghostbusters. What hath Ghostbusters to do with 2 Kings chapter 1, you might be asking? Not much. Say for this, both are comedic and a little bit dark. We come to the first chapter of 2 Kings, which is actually the midway point of the book of Kings. It was just one book split into two scrolls. And we find ourselves amidst a bit of a comedy. The author demonstrates for us how foolish the son of Ahab, Ahaziah, is. And we are to look at his foolishness and recognize, man, he is dumb. And the point of the chapter is pretty, pretty straightforward. Do not go after idols. That's dumb. Flee from idolatry to the living God. Love the Lord your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And really, even we, if we really want to work the Ghostbusters introduction in here, when we look at Ahaziah here, we are supposed to be thinking of Jehoshaphat at the end of 1 Kings chapter 22. We talked a lot about Jehoshaphat last week. And remember what he did that differentiated him from the wicked Ahab was that when he was confronted by the word of God in the mouth of a prophet, he repented. And what distinguished him from Ahab was when Ahab heard the word of the Lord, Ahab chose to live by lies. Remember, he disguises himself and tries to go into battle to avoid God's judgment, try to hide from God's judgment. And yet God's judgment finds him out. Well, Jehoshaphat, when he finds himself in trouble, He calls out to the living God, and the Lord helps him. I included that on your insert once again from 2 Chronicles chapter 18. You can see it there. Maybe just read that whole section on Jehoshaphat later. But but the picture we are supposed to have is one of contrast. The righteous Jehoshaphat sat over and against both the wicked Ahab and the wicked Ahaziah. And so our, our chapter today is actually sort of the second part of that. Literarily, it's the second part of what's called a chiasm. 
And so we're supposed to see Ahaziah in contrast with Jehoshaphat. And we're supposed to see just how foolish Ahaziah is. I've told you this is funny, but it's funny on a number of levels. Uh, Think about it. He's going to fall out of a window is how this is going to open up. And so of all the things we could be told about his reign, we're told that he falls out of a window. Right? He falls out of a window. Then he looks for help, not from the Lord, the God of Israel, but from Baalzebub. And Baalzebub is a deliberate corruption of the title Baalzebul. Okay, Baalzebul means Lord Prince. It's the name of a Philistine god. Baalzebub means, and you probably have a footnote in your Bible, it means Lord of the Flies. Okay? The author is mocking this false god that this foolish king who fell out of a window is calling out to. And we'll see his obstinance portrayed over and over again as he sends group of messenger after group of messenger to try and control and command the prophet of God. Elijah will call fire down from heaven onto the first group, and Ahaziah will go, well, let's try that again. And fire will come on the second group, and he'll go, let's try it again. And even after Elijah finally gets to him and makes the pronouncement of judgment on him, even at that point, he still refuses to repent. It's darkly humorous. And it is meant to teach us that there is no life in idolatry. It is foolish to go after dumb idols. It is foolish to look for life and hope and meaning anywhere but the Lord our God. There's one question that dominates the chapter. It's sort of this excoriating rebuke that's found in Elijah's mouth. We, we will see it in verse 3, verse 6, and a variation of it in verse 13. But he says, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Like, what are you thinking? Call out to the living God. And so we've made that our main idea. Tried to say it this way. Is it because Christ is not Lord that you look to idols for answers and life and meaning and hope? Do not be foolish, brothers and sisters. Christ is Lord. Look to him. Call out not to the counterfeit gods of this world. Call out to Jesus Christ. Outline is there before you. Let's pray and get into the text together this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we need your help today as much as any day. We need your new mercies. We thank you that you give them to us each morning as you used to give manna to the Israelites in the wilderness. That you provide for us grace enough for this day and this day only, not the next day. Sometimes we get so weighed down by worry and anxiety and the troubles of this life that that we... We just look all the way down the hallways of time and become overwhelmed instead of recognizing our need to trust you right here and right now to provide our daily bread and to believe that tomorrow you will provide us once more for our daily bread. 
Lord, teach us once more to rely on you rather than ourselves, rather than our planning. Help us to rely on and to trust your grace, which is given to us in the appropriate measure each and every day. Even this Lord's Day, we ask that you would feed us with your word. You would sustain us with your grace. That you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to encounter you as your word is faithfully proclaimed this morning. We, we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Verse 1, chapter 1, 2 Kings. After the death of Ahab, we're off to a good start. Man, thank goodness. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Ahab's death isn't all good news. There's been some political destabilization, which we'll come to in chapter 3. Right now, though, the camera homes in, focuses in on Ahaziah. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice, sort of like a screen or a window, right? He fell through the lattice work, maybe over a banister, through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go, inquire of Baalzebub, Lord of the Flies, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. He falls through a window, not very kingly. I mean, who falls through a window? He's sick, and in his moment of need, when he wants to know what the future holds, when he wants to try and find some hope and some answers, he calls not out to the living God of Israel, but he sends messengers to the Philistine God, Baalzebub of Ekron. He calls out not to the God of David, but to the false God of Goliath. This is an intensification of the idolatry that was endemic in Israel. I mean, he is worse, Ahab's house and Ahaziah has become worse even than the house of Jeroboam. Remember, Jeroboam leads the people that will become the northern kingdom out from under the oppressive rule of Rehoboam. He has a promise in his hand that if he's faithful to the Lord, the Lord will make him a David-like house. But Jeroboam, when he comes out and he, he gets out of Israel, he thinks to himself, you know what I really need to do is customize my own religion so that these northern tribes, these people that have come with me, aren't tempted to return to the true temple in Jerusalem. And so he erects not one, but two golden calves for the people to worship in Bethel and at Dan. He's not a great guy. Idolater. All the evil kings are said to walk in the way of Jeroboam. You don't want to be like Jeroboam. But now, we come to Ahab. We learn in 1 Kings at the end that he sold himself to do more evil than any before him. And we come to Ahaziah, Ahab's son, and we learn that he's even worse than Jeroboam. And you're going, how? Well, you'll remember in 1 Kings 14, Jeroboam's son gets sick. And despite all of his idolatry, 
Jeroboam still knows who God is. He sends his wife, remember she gets a disguise on? He sends his wife to learn from a true prophet of Yahweh whether or not his son will recover. And now here, Ahab's son, Ahaziah, he's had an accident. He's wondering if he'll recover. And so he sends messengers not to the prophet of Yahweh, but to the Lord of the flies. Things have gotten really bad in Israel. The decline of the kingdom continues. The glory of the kingdom is fading. I mean, idolatry stains and spreads in the book of Kings. It really is interesting. First Kings opens up with David old and cold, remember? His life is fading. It sort of is a forecast of what's going to happen in the whole book. The kingdom's going to fade. After David comes Solomon, the kingdom is in its glory, but then Solomon turns his heart to idols. And ever since then, it's been a decline, faded glory. And eventually, we're coming to a fall of a kingdom. David starts the book off old and cold, and here at sort of the midway point and the opening of 2 Kings, we have Ahaziah, king of Israel, injured and ill looking not to the God of Israel, not to David's God, but to an idol. Since Solomon's idolatry, things have been spiraling out of control. I mean, Solomon was attracted to the idolatry of his many wives. They turned his heart to their gods. He was taken with gun, gold, girls, That's what it was for him, guns, gold, and girls. For Rehoboam, it was the allure of power. For Rehoboam, he was seduced by the idolatry of popular approval. Ahaziah, like Ahab, well, he just really loves himself. He looks to God's that will tell him what he wants to hear. I wonder what sort of counterfeit gods, what idols, are you tempted to worship? I mean, sure, their idols often were carved out of wood and stone and animated by the demonic. Our idols are more intangible things. You know, power, control, money, sex, approval. What is it that you are tempted to look to for your hope and your security and your life rather than God? And this is what idolatry is. It's looking to anything or anyone other than the Lord Jesus for your hope and for your life. At the end of the day, all sin is really just disordered desire. Some of the idols that we are most tempted to worship are really good things. Things that we ought to desire. They're good for us. But what we do in the wickedness of our hearts is we we love those things in a disordered way. 
such that we, we elevate our family or our job or even the security offered to us by financial well-being. We take those things and we put them above the Lord and we look to them for our satisfaction. What are, what are your idols? For Ahaziah, I think it is a desire not only to hear what he wants to, but to know and control the future. He has that anxiety. He wants to know, will I recover from this? Maybe that's your idol, Christian. You constantly find yourself imagining the future into the present and thinking of all the different things you can do to shape the world according to you want, the way you want next week. You want to know, will I recover? Ahaziah looks outside of God's word to address his anxiety. And his looking outside of God's word for answers is not unique to him. I know plenty of people, some of whom would call themselves Christians, that take solace in the practice of astrology. Astrology, when I was in college, which wasn't, I mean, I guess it's getting longer ago, but I don't feel like it was that long ago. I mean, we used to, you'd have the horoscope in the, the old DA newspaper, and you'd read it and you'd laugh, and it was nothing, not anything to live your life by. But astrology's become really popular, not just where we live, but all across the country. People will live their lives and try to predict how their lives will go on the basis of horoscopes and the way that the planets and stars order themselves around the universe. Some even have uh, power crystals. Maybe you will see this if you're out here in the valley. People will have these crystals around their neck and it will be made of a particular element of the earth. And the belief underneath of that is that the crystal has an amplifying power, that it can amplify the planetary properties in regard to the stars aligning such that the hopes and desires of the person who has the power crystal can have a better chance at fulfilling their own desires. And their hope is in knowing the future and controlling it. Not so different from some of us. Not so different from Ahaziah. I mean, we're tempted to look to a myriad of things. Rather than Christ and his word to live our lives by tempted to look to all sorts of counterfeit gods to give us hope. Maybe it's a retirement plan. Maybe you find your joy just in distracting yourself with constant entertainment. Maybe it's the science that you look to for hope. Or, or advancing technology. There is no shortage of articles about how we are eventually going to be able to augment our minds and bodies to overcome that terrible human condition of death. And technology offers hope of eternal life to some. Is it because Christ is not Lord that we look to idols for answers and hope and life? We are so tempted to look to counterfeit gods. And I think the reason is the same as Ahaziah's. We 
like to look to gods that we can shape after our own image. We like to worship idols that give us answers we like. It's a funny thing about our idols is they, we have a way of helping them to look just like us. A lot of people do this with Jesus. They look at the biblical Jesus and they say, that's kind of gross, I don't like what he says about this or about that. I know, I will make my very own custom Jesus. And I'll change the words of scripture here and there, like a, sort of like a buffet, I'll pick the words that I like and I'll disregard the words that I don't like. And then I'll say, Jesus, I've got Jesus. But really the custom Jesus is an impotent idol. Not anything like the Christ who is risen and who is seated on his throne at the right hand of the Father. We go where we think we will get answers that we like. We prefer counterfeit gods because they let us keep our desires disordered rather than forcing us to subject our desires and our lives to the word of God. Idols allow us to control and rule over ourselves rather than bending our knees to the rule of Christ. That's why they're attractive. We want to hear what we want to hear. We want to do what we want to do. And so we go where we think we will get our preferred answers. I always say, where your heart is, there your argument will be also. Very few people are as objective as they like to pretend to be. And even, I think even my kids recognize uh, the, or I guess at least illustrate, the penchant we have for going somewhere to hear answers that we want to hear. They know that if they want to have some extra time playing video games or maybe a sweet treat for doing nothing at all, their odds of getting a good answer go way, way up when they come to me instead of Chelsea. Right, they, they know mama has lists, and she's going to say, you've got to have, you gotta have did you do your diligence work? Did you do your reading lesson? Have you read today? Have you played outside? X, Y, and Z. There's going to be some hurdles to clear. And so they come to me because they know daddy might give me that answer I want. We're the same way with idols. You know, we don't, we don't go to the Bible right away to think about how to order our lives, there might be something in there that we don't like. So we go to our favorite guru, maybe a false teacher who will tickle our ears a little bit, maybe even use a little bit of scripture. We go after counterfeit gods because they allow us to rule our lives as if we were God. That's what Ahaziah is doing. He's so dead in his sin, does not even consider looking to the Lord, the God of Israel. And God has had enough. He confronts Ahaziah's idolatry, verse 3. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub? the God of Ekron? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? 
And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus saith the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. God confronts idolatry because he hates idolatry. This is first commandment stuff. You shall have no other gods besides me, and he will not tolerate any other gods beside him. He interrupts Ahaziah's messengers to say, are you really, really going to look to the Lord of the flies for answers and life and hope? That's where we're at, Ahaziah. That's where your heart is? Well, I tell you, because that's where your heart is, you will become like the Lord of the flies. Your body will become surrounded by flies. You will die in your sins. Notice here too, Elijah, we've seen this over and over again in his life. The word of God comes to him and he obeys it. Here's another juxtaposition or contrast for us. Since chapter 17, when Elijah first showed up, every time God's word comes to him, Elijah obeys. God's word says, go, and Elijah goes. He goes to the king and confronts him. The word comes to Elijah, he goes to the brook Cherith. The word of God moves, Elijah goes to the widow's house. The word of God moves, Elijah goes to confront Ahab. Over and over and over again, God speaks and Elijah listens. And Ahab, back in 1 Kings, over and over and over again, God's word comes to him, comes to him, comes to him, and he stamps his foot, and he plugs his ears, and he does not listen. He sees plainly before him, this is the truth of God, this is the word of God in the mouth of a prophet of God, and here are lies, I'm going to believe the lie. And now Ahaziah is continuing Ahab's legacy. He hears the word of the Lord, but he does not hear it. He will not be changed by it. It is a bright contrast. We are to seek to be like a Elijah, such that when we read the word of God, when we hear the word of the Lord, we respond to it with faith and obedience, not by plugging our ears and stamping our feet and going our own way. We are not to be those who walk in the way of Jeroboam, who walk in the way of Ahab, who walk in the way of Ahaziah. No, we are to walk in the way of David, in the way of Jehoshaphat, in the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be those who have our hearts not set on ourselves or on idols, but on the Lord our God. We are to be those who look in our time of need, when we are at our wits end, when we are maybe on our deathbed like Ahaziah, we are to turn to God and say, help. Lord, I'm yours. You are my hope. You are my stay. You are my ever-present help in time of need. We are to be like Jehoshaphat, who, when he was surrounded by enemies, 1 Chronicles 20, you were supposed to read it last week for homework. You know, this is the follow-up. We're supposed to be like him. When he's surrounded, what does he do? He says to the Lord, he prays, Lord, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This is what we are to be like, like Elijah and like Jehoshaphat. Eyes on the Lord. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to flee idolatry. Isaiah does not flee idolatry. And in our contemporary culture, 
God's sort of stepping in here and saying, enough. Confronting Ahaziah's idolatry. God's demand for exclusive obedience and worship. Well, that seems really quite oppressive. Our culture does not like God much. He's intolerant. Seems tyrannical. I mean, why can't Ahaziah have and worship whichever gods he wants in peace? Friends, God demands and deserves all of our worship. The relationship that God calls his creatures to is one of loyalty and fidelity. God expects us to be faithful to him as we would expect our spouses to be faithful to us in marriage. That's why idolatry is so often illustrated with adultery in the Bible. God does not approve of open marriage. Not for anyone. Not for his people in regards to worship. It demands exclusive obedience, even if we don't like that, even if we want to be really tolerant. That's what the world wants. Like Everybody just put our arms around each other, sing Kumbaya. Worship who you want to worship. The problem with that is that there's a living God who made us, who deserves worship. And to offer our worship to idols or in any other direction is to rebel against him, to dishonor him. Idolatry earns the wrath and judgment of God. God deserves our whole hearts. And God hasn't changed. Sometimes you get the objection, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. Jesus shows up, everything changes, and now we can just be all about love. People that talk like that just show you that they've never read their Bibles. I mean, Jesus also demands exclusive obedience. Take up your cross and follow me. What's he saying? Love me more than you love your own life. Or uh, think of it, that classic tale of the rich young ruler, you know the one. He comes to Jesus and he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the pragmatists among us like bemoan Jesus' response. Think, you know, this is Jesus' opportunity. There's another one saved. He wants to know how he can have eternal life. He set Jesus up. Jesus, we expect, we want him to you know, walk him down the Roman's road. Share his knowing God personally track. Would you like to know God personally? Let me show you. Expect Jesus to maybe share his testimony. Speak to him a word of life. Tell him I'm the Messiah. You want eternal life. Be in me. I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who trusts in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Something, Jesus. That's not what Jesus does. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, Jesus knows that rich young is an aristocrat who loves rich young more than anything else in the world. And so Jesus exposes his idolatry. This is how he answers that question in Mark chapter 10 and verse 19. The rich young ruler has asked, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler said to Jesus, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Sure. Verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, listen, loved him. I love that part of the verse. Because Jesus loves the rich young ruler, he will not lie to him. Because Jesus loves the rich young ruler, he will confront his idolatry and call him to repentance. He loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. And then maybe one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Why, why, why does Jesus do this? Why does he just lay out the gospel? Because you can only have one God. Rich young ruler is an illustration of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 24. You'll know this one. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot have Jesus as your God and your bank account as your other God. Do you think maybe we stumbled onto another popular idol with bank account? Where do you look for your security? I know it's easy to say, I look to the Lord Jesus for my eternal security. But for my mortgage, I look to my bank account. You know? I mean, very practically, it's so, so easy for our hearts to get wrapped around the things that money can buy. We need to be very careful. You know, Jesus cautions us against greed more than he does against sexual promiscuity. But nobody thinks that they're guilty of greed. Rich, poor, everywhere in between. We need to be careful that we don't find ourselves worshiping our wealth. Is it because Christ is not Lord that we look to mammon for hope, security, answers? God demands obedience, and so he confronts Ahaziah's messengers. But also notice this. It's not, God is going to bring judgment to Ahaziah, but notice how encouraging this is. God doesn't just leave him in his sin. Sometimes that happens. If you read Romans 1, you recognize that an expression of God's wrath is to just give people over to what they want and allow them to live however they want under the curse of sin. He doesn't do that with Ahaziah here. He gives him the mercy as he's given Ahab. He gives him the mercy of giving him his word over again. That's encouraging. God makes his disobedience and his idolatry hard for him. I mean, in 
confronting Ahaziah's messengers and sending them back to him. Implicit in that act is an invitation for Ahaziah to repent and to trust the Lord. Let us pray, friends, that God would continue to give us such mercy when we stray into sin. Let us thank God for faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who are willing to do the tough work of taking us by the scruff of the neck and putting the smelling salts of the gospel under our nostrils whenever we stray from the way of righteousness. Ahaziah will not he will not find the way of righteousness but continues to walk the course of idolatry. His response to Elijah's words is that he wants to take out Elijah. He's going to send a military unit to arrest him. Not for a conversation, I don't think. Look at verse 7. He said to them, messengers have just come and reported Elijah's words. What kind of man was he who came to you to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair. Text can actually read he was just hairy. It's a hairy dude with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. I sort of hear Ahab's whiny voice back when he was dealing with Micaiah. I don't like him. He never prophesies anything good about me. Elijah, he was a thorn in my father's side throughout his whole life. Ugh. Verse 9, then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of the 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men stubborn, with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. You know, it's getting a little more aggressive than the first one. Come down now. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then, the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. This is sadly funny. Madness is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. The king wants to take hold of Elijah, I don't know, to torture him into speaking a different word or something, I'm not sure. But he wants his military units to bring Elijah to him. He's opened up hostilities against Elijah. And so the 50 and their commander come to the foot of a hill where Elijah is seated. And they tell him to come down. And Elijah says, no. And God fights for Elijah. Fire falls from heaven and consumes those who have set themselves against Elijah as his enemies. Don't miss where Elijah is seated. He is seated atop a hill. 
That is no mistake. Now think again, where have we seen a hill, fire, and a battle of gods and authority? Right? It takes us back to that famous scene in 1 Kings 18 in Mount Carmel. In fact, some believe that Elijah is seated on Mount Carmel in this scene. Either way, we are getting a repeat performance, an encore performance. Is the Lord God? Is he supreme? Is Elijah his man? The answer is yes. And those who oppose him and who cling to idols will be consumed by his furious judgment. I mean, this is miraculous. Miracles, they are rare even in Scripture. Why they're miracles. But notice, here as elsewhere, miracles do not guarantee faith. Sometimes they even come as a form of judgment. Miracles don't guarantee faith. Same thing as in the, in the New Testament. John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Some of the people believe. Others set themselves against Jesus and throw in with the Pharisees. John tells us in chapter 12 that Jesus performs many signs and wonders, and yet the people do not believe. Miracles do not guarantee faith. And they're rare. It is a a misstep, I think, in the Christian life, or even if you're a non-Christian, to go, I really need God to do a miracle so that I might believe if you're a non-Christian. Or if you're a Christian, I really need God to do a miracle so that my faith will be strengthened. That's what you really need is the ordinary means of grace, God and his word, to remember the promise of Christ to be with you always to the very end of the age. If you're here and you are a non-Christian, there is one miracle that God loves to perform regularly. It's the miracle of conversion, of the new birth. If you want to experience a miracle, Ask God to give you the gift of faith. Put your faith in Christ. Trust in the Lord Jesus. He loves to do the miracle of bringing dead people to life. Ahaziah hears rumors of Elijah riding a dragon and that dragon breathing fire across his captains. I'm sure the rumors got twisted in that direction. Fires coming from heaven consumed not one, but two military units. And so Ahaziah decides, I'll send a third military unit. We have to admire his determination. Almost. I mean, this is idiocy. Verse 13. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. I mean, let's just stop there for a second. Can you imagine being this third captain? You're like, 
they're in the barracks or whatever, a military place that military people hang out at. I don't know. You've, you've got your cell phone there. Maybe you're eating some cheese balls, sipping on some Perrier. Perrier, Perrier, you know, a little bubbly water. Just having a nice day. A text message comes in. Somebody says, you know, it's captioned, fire falls from heaven, must see. And so you know, click on the link. YouTube opens up and you see some of your comrades consumed by fire. And you think, oh my, man, that's terrible. <sighs> really glad I didn't get that assignment. Before you can think much further about it, there comes a knock on your door. Come in. Captain. New orders. Hand, a piece of paper is handed to you and you unfold it. You are to take 50 men. Oh, no. And you are to bring Elijah to me. Are you serious? What, what must he have felt? I mean, he probably had a couple questions, like, one, how can the king be this stupid? You know, number two, how do I get out of this? He has enough sense to be afraid of the God of Elijah. And it's that fear that brings about his salvation. There is such a thing as saving terror. Sometimes fear gets bad press. Oh, you should never be scared into salvation. I've heard that said. You need to be drawn by the love of Christ. I, I, prefer, I think the Bible talks about people being converted through both. God does both. He draws his people to him by his love, and he also scares those who would stand against him into joining up. Fear of a holy God is good reason to repent of your sins and to trust that holy God. It is a good thing to be scared into salvation. It is a good thing to let the reality of God's judgment drive you to faith in Christ. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God gives rise to repentant faith. And it is the fear of God that puts this third captain on his face and under the mercy of God. He's smart enough to do what Ahaziah did not. And the third captain of the 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. Oh, man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So Elijah arose and went down with him to the king. Notice this thread of authority again that's been throughout the passage. Who has the power to get their will done? Ahaziah sends messengers. God interrupts those messengers and turns them back around again. Ahaziah sends messengers to Elijah to bring Elijah to him. And those messengers are consumed by fire the first two times. We are to see the same lesson of Carmel, that the Lord, he is God. He rules over all. He has the power. His word rules, not the word of Ahaziah. It is God's will that is ultimately decisive in the world. He is supreme. 
captain acknowledges that and is spared. We're going to come back to him in a second. But notice here, verse 15, the angel of the Lord says to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. God encourages Elijah here. And I sort of think, really? Elijah, he's calling down fire from heaven on his enemies. I don't know, does he really need encouragement, Lord? I mean, I'd, be, I'd be feeling pretty confident. I don't know that I'd be afraid of any. Yeah, yeah, if I'm a man of God, let fire come from heaven. I feel good. But notice, maybe we think that. I, but God gives this encouragement to Elijah because he needs it. And if we think a little bit more deeply about it, we recognize we probably would too. No matter how many triumphs we have in life, no matter how many times God comes through for us and providing for us over and over again, no matter how many times we take manna off the floor of the wilderness, no no matter how many times we are given our daily bread, no matter how much good and grace God gives to us, we very quickly find ourselves in need of encouragement from him again. God, do you really care? God, do you really love me? God, will you, will you come through for me? Friends, no one you know is suffering from too much encouragement. Let us endeavor to encourage one another. This is one of the reasons we come here on Sunday mornings. We come to obey the Bible, which tells us to build one another up in love, to stir one another up towards good deeds in love. We're not to forsake gathering together because when we come together, it's to worship the Lord together. And as we worship the Lord together, we encourage one another. We remind one another of the kingdom we belong to, of the king we serve, of the great love that he has for us, and of the great love he's given us for one another. Let us be and encouraging people. Everyone needs encouragement. Even Elijah, when he's calling down fire from heaven. But we must give this captain some attention. Isn't it amazing what he does? First captain, come down, O man of God. Second captain, come down right now. Both sort of reflecting Ahaziah's arrogance. But this third captain, turns out he's poor in spirit. He comes humble, with open hands, pleading with the prophet. Have mercy on me, on these, my servants. And it is his salvation. Comes in submission to God. Friends, this is a model for what Ahaziah should have done. And it is a model for us as we come before God's great prophet, our prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus. We we come to him in faith, poor in spirit. We say, Lord, I have sinned against you. My sins have earned your eternal judgment. I deserve to be consumed by fire. I've I've been 
working for the enemy. Please, give me life. And Jesus Christ does more than Elijah. He doesn't just say, you may live. He gives us his very life. He spares us from the fire of God's wrath by going under the fire of God's wrath on the cross for us. He dies so that when we put our faith in him, we're united to him by the Holy Spirit's work such that his death is counted as our death. So that when he's bleeding on the cross, his blood is being shed for our sins. He gives his blood for us. His death counts as our death. And when our faith is in him, his life becomes our life. He is risen up from the grave. His perfect life of righteousness is credited to our account. So we are justified before the Lord, adopted into his family. His resurrection previews for us the promise of our future. The grave will not hold us any more than it held the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave his blood for us. And so we give our blood for him. We have brothers and sisters, eternal life because we have trusted the great prophet who stood upon that hill beneath the fire of God. My non-Christian friend, don't be foolish like Ahaziah. Hear the word of the Lord. See the judgment of God on that hill far away. and Be like the captain, not the first two, the third captain. Bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. Elijah comes to the king. Much to Ahaziah's chagrin, I am certain, the message has not changed. Verse 16, Elijah said to him, Thus saith the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Ah, that familiar chorus of kings. He died and was buried. It's interesting we see that Jehoram, which is his brother, becomes king in Israel in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat. And you're going, that is confusing. Oh yeah. This is not the last time that this will happen, where kings in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom will share the same name. And in God's providence, that is intentional. We are to see 
that the idolatry of the north doesn't stay contained in the north. It is like Virginia Creeper working its way into the south. Before it's all over, the northern kingdom will fall. Jerusalem will fall. The exile will come. Judgment is coming. And friends, we must not be dumb like Ahaziah. Here he is at the end of his life even. He's had all these chances to turn to the Lord. And the message of Elijah comes. And you'll notice between 16 and his obituary in 17, there are no words. Ahaziah dies in defiant silence. Let us not be like Ahaziah, defiant and unresponsive to the word of the Lord, subject to the furies of hell. Now don't, don't be dumb going after false gods. Flee idolatry. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Be wise like Jehoshaphat. Call out to the God who is there. When it comes down to the real need in your life, ask yourself that question. Who am I going to call? False idols that can do no more for you than the Ghostbusters? Or will you call out to the king who was crucified, buried, is raised, and will return? Let's pray. Father, our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave you, the God we love. So we ask that you would take hold of our wandering hearts. You would hold us firmly in your hands. We thank you for sending Jesus, the good shepherd, to keep us in your green pastures. But we ask that when we do stray after idols, you would, whether through a brother or sister here, the prompting of your spirit through your word, that, that you would grab us by the scruff of the neck and bring us safely home again. We thank you that our salvation is by your electing grace alone. We're not saved because we're special because we're smarter than anybody else. We don't know you as Father because we're just really good people. We know you as Father because you chose to set your love on us just because. Thank you for this. Thank you for your love, that great love with which you loved us. Thank you for making us alive together with Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.